I went to Hawaii years ago when I was a little girl with my parents. My dad used to take these big old trips to Hawaii with all these Christian believers. Remember those trips, some of you who are my age or older? And it was, it was a great time to go because you were surrounded by Christians and um, we would have Bible studies in the evening and my dad would do these rallies and you were at hotel rooms and you're at the beach and everything was done with Christians. And one year that we went, I was 13 years old and I had this suede, I still remember, it was like beige suede covered Bible. And it was just the right size, and I absolutely adored this Bible. Um, I had written all sorts of prayers and all sorts of notes, and in those days, it was really cool to highlight with as many different colors as you possibly could. And I would go through the scriptures with my father on Sunday nights. It felt personal, but there were other people with us at church, and he would teach. And I mean, part of the way I, I kept my attention on the word was just to have all my different highlighters. And I think that every scripture in the whole Bible was highlighted. I think every single one, because I was coloring and there were doodles on the side. And it was just so personal. And I remember that one of the ladies who was on the trip, she was older, she was my mom's age, she was going to go witnessing um, down in uh, the main town. And she asked for anybody who wanted to go with her. And so I was one of those. And there was a whole group of us. There was probably about um, 10 that had gone to go witnessing. And she was sharing Jesus with this one man. And he was very, very resistant. And she said, I'm going to give you a Bible. I just want to give you a Bible. And I want you to read it and think about those things. And he said, I don't want your Bible. She said, I'm going to give you one anyway. And then she turned and she grabbed the Bible out of my hands. And she handed it to him. And he took the Bible, and I would say, no, no, that's my Bible. You know, my mom bought me that Bible. And right in front of me, he took and he tore my Bible in half. And he began to take the pages, and with this vehemence, just began to throw them on the ground and and take his hand and just grind them. And I was so upset. But he was, you know, beyond stupid to think that that would stop the power and certainty of the word of God. There are some people who just become unglued. Have you noticed? By the word of God. You bring up the Bible and it's just like, I still remember, you know, I went to public high school. I went to public elementary school. I went to public college. And I still remember some of the reactions about Jesus. And some were so over the top. Don't, don't you do any scripture. Don't you say that. Don't you do that. You know, you're just so narrow-minded. How can you believe in this archaic book and what it says? And then there were the others uh, who were just trying to not offend anybody. And yet dismiss Jesus from their life. And they would say things like, well, he was obviously a wonderful person. Or he was a moral teacher. He was upright. He was misunderstood. Someone as far as to say he was a great religious leader. And then some tried to deny the historical fact that Jesus lived and died and rose again. 
But at the end of the day, nobody could simply dismiss Jesus. None of these other claims could work. They all met with failure. They can all be um, disproven. They can, you can come back with the facts. I've told you this story before, but in high school, I had a friend and she was really into transcendental meditation. She had her little private word that she had received from the Maharishi that was just individual to her, not like anybody else's word. And she was always proselytizing people or trying to into transcendental meditation. It was the 70s. This was something that was really popular. And another friend of mine, all that she would say to her whenever this woman, this girl would come up and try to proselytize us, my friend would just say, I don't know anything about this, but I know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Well, Suzanne, who was into the transcendental meditation, went home and she got in her position she began to say her word over and over again, but she couldn't clear her mind. She couldn't get rid of the words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. She said it was like a scream in her mind. And these words kept running across the screen. And she was like, no, 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 clear. Ooh. And she was saying her, I'll tell you her word. It was um. Um, um, and she kept saying it, but it wouldn't go away until finally she gave her heart and mind and life to Jesus Christ and came to high school the next day and said, you're not going to believe what you made me do. <laughs> it was interesting because, you know, there was a whole group of us at um, my high school that had all received Jesus when we used to eat lunch together. And we said to her, okay, to show that this is really true, you've got to say your private word to us. And she was really resistant. But we kept, you know, when you're in high school and you're passionate for Jesus, you can really press the issue. You get older and you're very careful. But in high school, you don't have that carefulness. So we're like, you have got to tell us that word. Yeah, that's the way to really denounce, you know, this idolatry of, of uh, transcendental meditation. So anyway, she said, okay, the word was om, A-H-M. And this other girl goes, what? I paid $25. That was supposed to be my word. Just saying, just saying. Pilate made an attempt to dismiss Jesus. But all of Pilate's attempts to just simply dismiss Jesus met in absolute failure. First of all, he tried to declare him innocent in Luke chapter 23. Just simply to say in verse four, I find no fault in this man. Done. Before Pilate could say that. And it was over. It was just over. That, that criminal was absolved. That person was set free. He went back into society and Pilate's word and Pilate's verdict was the end of the cause, the end of the case, the end of the situation. But here he announces to the crowd, I find no fault in him. And there's a pushback from the religious leaders. And they begin to cry out, crucify him. Then Pilate finds out that Jesus is from Galilee, verses 6 through 12. 
And so he says, well, that's Herod's jurisdiction. Jesus ministered in Galilee. He's from Nazareth. Then let's send him to Herod. So he tries to pass Jesus off to somebody else. And like, well, it's all about what decision Herod makes. It's not my decision. I'm willing to go with whatever Herod says. Then he tries to bargain with Jesus' prosecutors by releasing to them either Jesus or a criminal. In fact, what he's saying to the crowd is, let's go easy on Jesus. Look, it's the feast time. It's your Passover. You know, there's always the release of a prisoner. Why not Jesus? He's innocent. Let's, let's just release Jesus. Just release him. But they cry out for a criminal Barabbas to be released in place of Jesus. Pilate then offers a compromise. In verse 22, he says, I'll have Jesus flogged. I'll hurt him in front of you. Will that be enough? Will that satiate you? If I take the men who do the punishment, the executor, and I let them take the whip that is filled with glass and beads and pieces of wood, this, this whip that had many straps to it, and let them lacerate the back of Jesus with 39 times, not just once. Because what would happen with this whip is that these little straps would all catch in the skin and pull the skin back with it. So every time it came down with all these different straps, each strap would grasp a piece of skin and tear it off the back once and now into those places that were already torn, those places that were already exposed, the lash would go down again, tearing up even more, tearing up the muscles itself 39 times with the full force of the one inflicting the whipping. 39 times. And even when Jesus' back was lacerated, and let me just say this, that many died simply from the whipping alone because it was so forceful. There was such a a large amount of blood that was lost that many simply bled out. But Jesus, Jesus endured it. But even with this torturous procedure, the people refused to be pacified. It was not enough. The chief priests and rabble crowd stirred up and refused to be placated by anything less than Jesus' complete and public death. They demanded a public denunciation. They insisted on the cruelest form of death, crucifixion. And Pilate was forced to choose between Jesus and the crowd, but he could not choose both. And he could not simply get rid of Jesus or dismiss Jesus. He couldn't both appease the crowd and preserve Jesus' life. And it's the same today for anyone who tries to please the world while trying to maintain a neutral stance toward Jesus. 
because there's a voice beyond the crowd and it's satanic and demonic and it cries out for the complete denunciation and removal of Jesus from the earth. You cannot simply dismiss Jesus because Jesus stands even now before every man and woman and says, what will you do with me? What will you do with me? What will you do with my love, with my sacrifice, with the work that I've done for you on the cross? It is the ultimate question of life. The ultimate question. The ultimate question of life is not your career. It's not how many children you have had or will have. It's not about who you marry or don't marry. It's not about where you live. Every other question in life is trite compared to the great question, what will you do with Jesus of Nazareth? It cannot be transferred to someone else. It's their fault. They hurt me and they were a Christian. Or I didn't like the way the church did this. Or I thought the church was too much of an institution. You can't remove the judgment from yourself. You can't substitute. It's not enough to sincerely believe in another leader or, or choose another religious figure. Jesus still stands before you and says, Yes, but what will you do with me? And you can't compromise. You can't say, well, I believe you're a good man. I believe you're a moral man. Maybe even a historical figure, a great religious leader. Very compelling. I remember one young man once, I was sharing Jesus with him, and he says, well, I really like the positive energy Jesus gave. You're like, okay. Again, you know, 70s. Positive energy. But Jesus is so much more than a force or an energy. He is a person. And he stands before everyone, even as he did before Pilate, and says, what will you do with me? In Luke 23, we behold Jesus' innocence. He is absolutely innocent. What will you do with Jesus' innocence? Three times Pilate announces the innocent or declares the innocency of Jesus. Three times in Luke 23. Seven times, if you combine all the Gospels, you will find that seven times he pronounces Jesus sinless. In Luke 23, 4, he says, I find no fault in this man. In Luke 23, 14, he says, you have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence. In other words, Pilate's saying, I've heard all the accusations. I've watched all his reactions. I've heard your entire case. And I myself have scrutinized him. I found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent him to Herod, and indeed nothing worthy of death has been done by him. 
Then verse 22 of Luke 23, I have found no reason for death in him. In Leviticus chapter five, we read that the lamb for Passover was to be inspected and examined, scrutinized to make sure that the lamb offered for Passover, the sin offering, and the trespass offering had to be a ram without blemish and had to be inspected and declared without blemish, to be declared worthy, pure, innocent. He, Jesus, is the lamb of the world that takes away the sin. And he was examined for blemish. He was examined for fault. He was scrutinized and no sin was found in him. You know, I don't know if you know what it's like to be slandered, to be falsely accused to be lied about, but it's terrible. It's absolutely horrific. I, I know it's, it's, it's been all my life. You can't be a public figure without some scrutiny, without some magnification. But I often think I didn't do those things, but I've done a lot of other things. I could supply you with better ammunition than you're using because those are all blanks. I know the real stuff. I know the stuff that makes me worthy of death. I know my sin. I know the thoughts that I've had. I've had murderous thoughts. I have murderous thoughts. I've wanted to kill people I didn't even know just because they pulled in front of me on the freeway. I know I keep going back to the freeway, but that's, that's where if ever I could lose my salvation, it would happen. I've had, I've had discriminating thoughts. I have had thoughts that I, you know, I, I've had thoughts like, like, Lord, don't save them. I've prayed that prayer. Don't save them. Save only me. Oh, I'm a naughty person in my heart. I desperately need Jesus. There are times that God has let me see the depravity of my heart, where I would go without him. And I want to say it is so ugly. It is so terrifying that I have even said to the Lord, don't ever leave me alone with Cheryl's flesh. Don't leave me there. Now I say that about myself, but you know what the Bible says? There is not one righteous. No, not one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory. Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Because we're sometimes in denial of our own heart. And in denial that we can think the things we do or can act the way that sometimes, I mean, have you ever had a reaction? You're like going, oh, I can't believe I did that. Well, I, I wonder what brought that on. It must have been you that brought that out, you know, that made me do it. We always want to say, you made me do it rather than you brought this out in me. Like you brought that ugly thing to the surface that I've been trying to cover all my life. You know, the ugly beast that dwells in our heart, that wants dominance of our heart, that is called our flesh. It's not the devil. It's our flesh. 
And we've all thought, we've all done. We're all guilty, but not Jesus. Nothing in him was worthy of death, nothing. Death had no hold on him, no accusation that would stand against Jesus. But now notice the integrity of Jesus. As he's tried, as he's prosecuted, as he's led from place to place, bound, he does not raise his voice. Now see, that's something that we, you made me raise my voice. I really don't like to raise my voice. And I don't ordinarily yell, except in the car on the freeway all by myself. I don't ordinarily yell. But you made me yell. Jesus had every cause to scream, to yell, to shout. He knew the heart of every man. Remember in John chapter 8 when they brought the woman accused of adultery? And they said, we have a law, and by our law, she should be stoned. And Jesus knelt on the ground and began to write. And we're told that everyone who saw what he was writing was pricked by their own conscience, and they began to leave one by one. What did he write? I believe he wrote the accusation, the cause against every man, the reason that no man could pick up a stone and throw it at that woman. He who is without sin, let him cast the first stone, and nobody could cast a stone. Nobody. And so their conscience was pricked and they all left. Jesus could have said, yes, and you did this and you did that and you did that. Remember the woman at the well? John chapter four. She's acting all cute. Like, hey, (laughs) where are you going to get that water? This well is deep and you have nothing to draw with. You need me. And Jesus said, you know, if you knew who I was and the gift that I offer you, you would ask of me and I would give you living water. She says, all right, give me that water. And he said, go call your husband. And she looks at him. I don't have a husband. And she says, yep, you're right. You've had four and the one you're living with, you're not married to. Jesus knew. Jesus knew. He knew all of the conditions that were keeping her from salvation. He knew all her sin, just like he knows all of our sin. He reads our heart. He knew the sins of every man who was accusing him. And yet, He did not raise his voice. He did not seek his own release. He didn't say, what? Barabbas? You're letting Barabbas go? Do you know what that man has done? You just know of one murder. I know of his thoughts of murder. I know his plots and his plans. I know how he's lived his life and the violence in him. He doesn't seek his own release. He does not curse his attackers. Imagine the curses Jesus could have brought down on his attackers and on those who crucified him. He did not capitulate to Pilate or to Herod. He didn't capitulate. He didn't say, all right, what do you want me to do so you'll release me? He never compromised. He didn't even speak to Herod. He endured the brutality, the rejection, the vehement accusation, the mocking, the flogging, the public humiliation, the cross. He laid his life down. He even allowed, 
He allowed, all of this is by his allowance. He could have stopped it at any time. He is the son of God. He is the host of heaven that could have called down legions of angels. But he allowed it. Even as we studied last week, as he said to Peter, permit it to be so. Peter, allow this. So Jesus allowed this. He allowed the nails to be pounded into his hands and feet. And all this time he is serene. He is controlled. He is compassionate. Even as his accusers are chaotic, raging, frenzied. He refuses the sponge laced with vinegar that's offered to him. Verse 36. He would not diminish the pain and physical agony he felt with any type of sedative. He would not allow himself to be numbed from the pain. He wanted to feel it all for our sakes. So no one could say, I felt more pain than you'll ever experience, Jesus. No one can ever say that. Jesus alone has felt, felt the depths of pain. In Hebrews 2.10, the author of Hebrews writes, For it was fitting, right, for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the author of salvation perfect through suffering. It was right to allow Jesus to suffer. That when we pray, he understands. Jesus doesn't say, well, you think that's bad? This is what I went through. He doesn't, he doesn't dismiss our pain. Instead, he says, I know and I weep with you. I feel what you feel. I know, I understand. And because I understand, I empathize and I sympathize and I'm with you and I will bring you through. That's what Jesus does. There is a fellowship of suffering, not a dismissal of our suffering, but a fellowship with us. Jesus joins us in our pain and he attaches himself to us and he weeps with us. And he understands, and he empathizes, and he sympathizes. Oh, what integrity. He endures it all. He feels it all. No numbing at all. No aspirin, no ibuprofen, no no marijuana, no drunkenness. He refuses any numbing to the pain of Calvary. But then from the cross, behold his intercession, even before the cross, as he testifies to Pilate of his mission. And then on the way to Calvary, as he stops to minister and warn the women who are weeping, 
Luke 23, 28 through 31, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Here is Jesus interceding, saying, pray for yourselves, because that's who I'm praying for. For indeed, the days are coming in which they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? What a warning. What a warning. Jesus is telling these women not to weep for him. He is accomplishing salvation for them. But weep for those who are crucifying the innocent. Weep for the fate of the guilty because it will be much worse than what you see happening to the innocent. Looking down from the cross, seeing the callous men gambling at his feet, seeing the seething religious elite gloating over his death, seeing his beloved followers standing afar off, those coming from Galilee beating their breasts, hearing the devilish taunts, if you are the son of God. The same voice that spoke to him in the wilderness, if you are the son of God, command that the stone be made bread. If you are the son of God, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. Make people believe in you. That same voice, if you are the son of God, then save yourself. Come down from that cross and we'll believe in you. If you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, prove yourself, prove yourself. But even then, he intercedes and he labors to intercede because speaking from the cross was absolutely excruciating. He had to push his weight against the piercing pain of the nail that held his feet. He had to gasp to bring air into his collapsing lungs. And in order to push himself up from that nail, that peg that held his feet, he had to rub his already lacerated back against the rough wood of the cross. And yet, he labors to pray. You know, we talk about laboring in prayer. Nobody has labored in prayer like Jesus. Gasping for breath. Hoisting his weight. Upon that piercing pain, he prays, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Father, cancel their debt against you. Cancel this debt against me. Even as Jesus observes the ugliness, the anger, the depravity of men against himself, he intercedes for man's forgiveness from God. You simply cannot dismiss someone like Jesus. Observe the inscription above his head, verse 38. 
It is written for the world to know, for the world to read. It is in the major languages of that time, Greek, Latin, Hebrew. And it reads, this is the king of the Jews. Not this was the king of the Jews. Not he called himself the king of the Jews. Not he claimed to be the king of the Jews. But this is. This is. Jesus was by all legal rights the king of the Jews. Jesus was by all biological rights the king of the Jews. Jesus was by all divine right the king of the Jews. He is the anointed one of God. He is the very son of God. And he is the one that the prophet spoke of and foretold. That root of Jesse That branch of God himself, that righteous branch. But even in death, he shows the nobility of a king. Even one of the thieves on the cross recognizes this nobility. He began by reviling. In Matthew 27, verse 44, it tells us that both the thieves blasphemed. And reviled Jesus. But suddenly he stops because he sees the royalty of Jesus. He sees the nobility, the innocence, the integrity. And he rebukes the criminal on the other side of Jesus and says, Do you not even fear God? Seeing you are, and I are under the same condemnation. And we indeed justly, we deserve what we are getting for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then turning to Jesus, he asks, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He recognizes that Jesus is a king and Jesus is going to a kingdom that is not of this world. He sees the nobility of Jesus and he asks to be remembered when Jesus is in that kingdom, when Jesus sits on that throne. He suddenly sees this man is a king and he's going to a kingdom and he's going to have authority and power there. So remember me when you're in that kingdom. And Jesus says to this thief, this day you will be with me in paradise. I want you to see the intentionality of Jesus. When we read, you know, Jesus came and he was on mission. He had an intention. And every word that Jesus said was intentional. You know, sometimes as you read, you're like, oh, Jesus, if you didn't say that, you wouldn't have gotten in so much trouble. If you didn't heal on the Sabbath, if you had just kept your healing from Monday to Sunday, I mean, from Sunday to Friday, you wouldn't have gotten in trouble. But there was an intentionality in what Jesus did. He was bringing something out. There's an intentionality in every word Jesus used. 
Jesus was speaking and he said, it's not that which goes into a man that defiles him, but that which comes out because it's in the heart that murder and thievery and all this ugliness exist. And the disciples come to Jesus and they said, you know what? The Pharisees were really upset by what you said. In other words, the disciples were saying, you might want to calm it down around the Pharisees. And Jesus looked at his disciples and he says, leave them alone. In other words, I'm not trying to impress or pacify or get along. I've come to tell the truth and I've come to die for the truth. This is why I've come to expose the evil in the heart of every man and to show every man that he needs the salvation that I am bringing and that I will procure by the cross. Jesus was absolutely intentional in every word, in every act, in every healing. Often when you read the word of God, the gospels, you will say, why did Jesus do that? Or why did he do it this way? I want you to know that that why is very important. Do not leave it there. Do not just relegate it to like, well, I guess I don't know. No, stop there. Think about that why. Consider that why. Present that why to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, tell me the why. Tell me the why. And I want to tell you, when you think about the why Jesus did it, heaven will open up to you. And you will end up praising the Lord as you never have before. Personally, I love the why questions. I love it because it makes me have to go deeper into the word of God, deeper into Jesus Christ, deeper into the work of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit brings us understanding The Holy Spirit brings to our remembrance the things that Jesus has said. Don't be afraid of a why question because there's an answer. There's always an answer. And the answer is more glorious than you could ever expect. Sometimes we're afraid of why questions like, what if I don't like the answer? What if the answer diminishes from the glory of Jesus? It won't. It won't diminish. It will electrify the glory of Jesus to your mind. It will bring it home. As a child growing up, as I've told you before, I think I was born again at two and three and four and five and six. My mother made sure. I remember I was baptized for the first time at seven. And my mother said, do you understand? And I had to I had to explain to her why I wanted to be baptized. And then she let me be baptized. I remember my first communion. I was dying to take communion. I wanted the grape juice and the cracker. But my mom was so suspicious that my motives were only to be like everybody else. To fit in. Or maybe just to have, you know, an activity during church besides sitting quiet and still, that I'd actually be able to drink and eat or even hunger just because I liked saltines and grape juice. And she made me explain to her why and what I thought of the cup and what I thought of the bread. And I remember saying to my mom, I just want Jesus, mom. I just want Jesus. I want as much of Jesus as I can possibly get. And I remember when the usher came, 
that night that I got to have my very first communion, and no, I didn't wear a white dress in the Catholic Church. It was at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And I remember the usher coming, and my mom shaking her head, yes. Cheryl gets communion. I still remember to this day, and I think I was five. I remember when I first got to, to take that cracker and put it in my mouth and think, Jesus died for me. His body was broken for me. I was so ecstatic. I could barely sit still, and it was communion. I was supposed to sit still. And then I got to take the cup myself. My mom let me take the cup myself. And I was so careful because I didn't want to spill one bit of that juice. I wanted, I wanted to take it in and know that Jesus had forgiven all my sins. That his blood was working for this little girl. This little girl. Let the children come unto me and forbid them not. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And I remember, I remember that communion. And I remember my baptism, all three of them. Nobody else gets baptized three times. But I remember being at the Jordan River. And I think I told you this before. My dad said it was our first trip to Israel. And nobody was lining up to be baptized because they had all been baptized before. And he says, Cheryl, how would you like to set an example and be baptized in the Jordan like Jesus? I said, all right. So I was the first person that Chuck Smith baptized in the Jordan River. You think that means anything to me? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember. But I remember that baptism. Again, going under the water of the Jordan, thinking Jesus went under this water, this same river, and coming up, identifying with Jesus Christ. I want to be all in. I want people to look at me and know I belong to Jesus. The why, the why of baptism, the why of communion is so important. Never, never fear a why. It will bring you into greater glory with Jesus Christ. In John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, Jesus said, therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life totally intentional that I may take it again. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I've received from my father on the cross. Jesus was intentionally dying for our sins. He was paying the cost intentionally. He was experiencing the wrath of God intentionally. The deep darkness that descended from 12 o'clock till three o'clock was the forsakenness that Jesus received as the father turned away. And as the father turned away, darkness descended. It descended. It came. It gradually fell descended as the father began to turn his, his whole demeanor away. And Jesus experienced the great darkness of life without God. What men 
who choose hell, and it is a choice, receive Jesus' experience that. So no one would ever have to experience that. Jesus experienced utter aloneness. The, no person would ever have to feel alone. Jesus experienced the wrath of God that no one else would ever have to perish. The darkness is the result of men turning from the light. And Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But observe the immediacy of his death or the accomplishment of his death. Jesus promised the repentant thief that that very day he would be with him in paradise. Verse 43. Now, he says, today, assuredly, I say to you, today, not tomorrow or in the far off future. But today, look at the immediacy of what Jesus was accomplishing. From that moment on, any who called upon the name of Jesus would be guaranteed paradise. But not only the immediacy, now, right now, but also with me. That sense that forever, from that moment forward, no one would have to live without Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Jesus says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. Why? Because he said, today, this day, I will be with you. You will be with me in paradise. You will be with me, with me. I love the with me. I love the today, but I also love the in paradise. Not that you'll be outside paradise, answer the right questions, fill out the forms, and maybe they'll let you in. But know the immediacy, the surety. You will be with me in paradise, not outside, not on the outskirts, but you're going to come right inside and live with me in paradise, the immediacy. But look at the immediacy of the veil immediately as Jesus died on the cross, the veil was ripped From top to bottom, God ripped the veil and said, there's no more separation. There's no more tabernacle that keeps people out. There's no more temple that keeps people out. And only Levites, especially chosen, appointed, anointed, dressed right, can come in. But now through Jesus, we are all invited into the Holy of Holies. By Jesus' blood, we come in boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace to help. Now we can go boldly. Now we can talk to God at any time and be immediately into the throne room of grace. Oh, the immediacy. The gospel records that before Jesus dismissed his spirit, he prayed, he cried out, it is finished. Or telestai, 
paid in full, accomplished, done. The immediacy of this work, it is done. Our debts are paid in full. He has done it. He has accomplished it. Then Jesus commended his selfless, sinless, submissive spirit to God. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. This is a prayer that every Jewish child was taught to pray before bed. Maybe you prayed, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I awake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. That's a form of this prayer that every Jewish child would pray. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Even in death, he is entrusting and trusting the Lord. There's never a moment of Jesus' entire existence. And he is the Alpha and Omega that he has not absolutely trusted and entrusted to the Father. Everything. John chapter 17, as he prays, he entrusts the disciples. He entrusts those who would come to salvation through him. He entrusts us to the Father. What is most precious to Jesus, he entrusts to the Father. And even in death, he entrusts his spirit. He entrusts his life. And he commends it. I commend my spirit to you. Here it is. Search me and know me. Scrutinize. I'm all yours. You can't simply dismiss Jesus. You cannot dismiss his absolute innocence, his complete integrity, his selfless intercession, his kingly inscription, his unwavering intentionality, and the immediacy of his accomplishment on the cross. Those who observed his death could not dismiss him. Everyone was affected in one way or another by the crucifixion of Jesus. Pilate was conflicted. Herod was, was displeased. Barabbas was released. The religious were exposed and enraged. The women were weeping. Simon of Cyrene was compelled. The soldiers were callous. The bystanders mocked. The followers of Jesus beat their breasts. The women from Galilee and the disciples stood afar off watching. Then later assembled and gathered spices to anoint him. The centurion was convinced certainly this was a righteous man. Or as Matthew records, the son of God. Because that was... What he was actually saying is certainly this was the only righteous man. Only. Here's this hardened centurion that no doubt saw hundreds upon hundreds of death. And he looks at Jesus' death and Jesus' demeanor. And he says, certainly, without a doubt, this is the only righteous man I've ever seen. He alone. The son of God. Joseph of Arimathea was moved to action. Before he had been a secret follower of Jesus, but now he goes openly to Pilate and he begs for the body of Jesus. And he takes down the lifeless, limp body of Jesus and he chooses defilement with a corpse rather than celebrate the Passover with his family and friends. He 
with Nicodemus embalms the body of Jesus. And John tells us that they took over 75 pounds of spices and this cloth to wrap around the body of Jesus. I love the fact that the women standing afar off watching 75 pounds of embalming ointment being placed on Jesus said, it's not enough. We've got to do our own. We've got to add ours to this. And then he laid Jesus in the tomb, the expensive, wealthy, new tomb that he owned. The tomb that everyone would know. This is the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. He said, I want to forever be associated with Jesus Christ. Whatever that means, whatever that takes. He chose complete identifying identification with Jesus. You see, Jesus deserves so much more than simply our sorrow over the injustice of his death. It's not enough just to stand on the street and say, this was really bad. This should not have been done. This was illegal. This was unjust. This was wrong. He deserves more than our tears over his physical torture. Just like, oh, I can't stand to see that or hear that or look at that. He deserves more than simply our sympathies. Like, what a shame. He deserves more than our spices and our gifts. He deserves our dedication, our absolute devotion, and our determination to forever be associated and identified with Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea gave up his reputation, his security, his position, his tomb to be near Jesus. How will you respond to Jesus? Isn't he worthy of everything? Absolutely everything. How can we hold back or withhold anything from Jesus? Who gave us all. God help us. God help us. Because it's not in us naturally. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. We need the power of God that we might fully embrace Jesus to the point of full association, full identity, and full obedience. The veil is torn and we have access to God through Jesus. We will be with him in paradise, an eternal hope because of Jesus. All the promises of God are now open to us because of Jesus. And our sins, past, present, future, are all forgiven. You know, Monday I sinned, I did, and I remembered it on Wednesday. I had been totally unmindful, even at the time when I sinned, and on Wednesday it came to my mind, and I went, oh my goodness, I, I didn't, um, how, how can I say, I'm, I didn't tell the complete truth, I, I kind of did, but I didn't, and it was about a class that I kind of I was supposed to take Humanity Core in college, in my third year of college, but I never got a chance to take Humanity Core because I met and married Brian Broderson, and so I've never finished college. And I made it sound like I'd taken Humanity Core. Now I'm confessing to the world. 
But I kind of said, because I was an English major, I had to take humanity core. But when I said I had, I was future tense, but I didn't really take it. But it was a requirement of an English major. And Wednesday, I thought, wow, I left that girl with the impression that I actually took that class when I was going to take that class, but never did. And, and all of a sudden, I began to say, oh, Lord, forgive me, forgive me. How can I have been walking with you this long? How can I know you as I do and mislead somebody? And that was for my own pride. And I wanted him to think more about me than his reality. Because Cheryl Broderson never took humanity core. She is a lousy sinner. And she missed the class, just like she missed the mark. And why did I let them think something? And Lord, forgive me. I'm a wretch. Blah, blah, blah. And the Lord spoke to me and said, Cheryl, I brought it to your memory because I had already forgotten it. I had already forgiven it. He had already forgiven it. He just wanted me to know that he had already forgiven it. You see, when Jesus brings up your sin, it's only to show you how he's already forgiven how he's already cleansed because of the cross. It's already been taken care of, but he just wants you to know that for that thing also, he already paid the price. You might not have taken humanity core, but it's already taken care of. He's already done what was necessary for you to be in paradise, for you to have the promises of God, for you to be saved and forgiven and to have the presence of Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever. The veil is torn. We have access to God. We will be with him in paradise. We are forgiven right now. And everything is under the blood of Jesus Christ. And we have the promises in his presence. No one else, no one else ever had the innocence, the integrity, made intercession for you with power, had the inscription, this is the king of the Jews, had the intentionality of Jesus to save men or brought about the immediacy or the great accomplishments that his death did for us. And today, Jesus of Nazareth stands before us and says, what will you do with me? What will you do with me? How much do you want to give me? How much will you yield? How much will you trust? How much will you entrust to me? It is the great either or. Receive, associate, identify, and devote. Or reject. But why would you want to dismiss a king who is so compassionate, so full of integrity, accomplished so much, sacrificed, has the best kingdom and the best plans, who drank the cup of the wrath of God so that we could drink the cup that he offers us now of salvation? What do you want to do with Jesus?